Turn with me to John 14. John chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 25 through 27 and considering peace on earth. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. Give attention to God's holy word. These things, have, uh, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank your glorious name. And we thank you for giving us the scriptures which reveal to us uh, your holy will, but they also reveal to us our Savior and the promises that have been made to us in his name. And so we pray now that as we study your word, you would bless this time, give us energy, help us to be attentive, for there are good things you promise to us as we diligently seek you. We ask you for the grace to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you may be aware, others are not aware, but you're going to be made aware, that the World Cup is going on right now. And I happen to really enjoy uh, watching soccer, or as the rest of the world calls it, football. Uh, and what's always exciting about the World Cup is that it comes around once every four years. It is, it is a true t- test of the world champion in that sport. And, and every soccer player wants to become a World Cup champion. They want to stand on the podium, hold the trophy, bask in the spotlight, and receive the glory and the praise and the adulation of their countrymen. But as you and I both know, to be an elite athlete and to win the highest crown in your sport, you have to do it the right way. You, you have to go through a series of games, and you have to go through the, the tournament stages, you have to go through the bracket, you have to beat a lot of teams. Before you even get to the World Cup competition itself, you have to give years and perhaps decades in some cases of dedication and sacrifice to achieve that level. Now, some of these players, they really want that World Cup trophy. They dedicate and sacrifice most, if not all, of their lives to achieve this goal. Likewise, well, I should say, not only is the World Cup going on right now, by the way, it's, it's actually kind of odd that's happening in December. Normally it happens in the summer. It's happening in Qatar. It's very hot there. So they decided to do it in December. Still hot, but they decided to change it. In God's providence, though, this is uh, it's very interesting because, as you're also aware, Christmas time is around the corner. And one of the phrases that you hear around Christmas time, you see it on cards, you hear it in the songs, you'll see it on the storefronts, is peace on earth, goodwill to men. Well, the peace that Christ's birth 
uh, brings to us, this promise of peace is far more valuable than a World Cup trophy. It's far more precious than anything an athlete can achieve in their chosen sport. The, the peace that God promises to us is worth every sacrifice. It, it's worth everything that we can give up to obtain this peace. But you see, sometimes in, in trying to lay hold of this peace, in trying to enjoy the peace that God promises to us in Christ, we forget that just like the World Cup athlete, there's a certain path you have to take to achieve it. There's a certain way to walk. There's a certain way to, uh, there's a certain path to follow before you can be crowned with that blessing of the covenant. Paul tells Timothy that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Likewise, in our spiritual life, there are a set of rules. There is a, there's a way in which we are to live it, that if we live it in that certain way, we will enjoy the blessings that Christ has given to us. And my hope in this sermon is to encourage you, but also to show you that in this passage, Christ promises His peace. He promises it to you. Through the power of the Spirit, working by and with His Word in the hearts of those who love Him. Christ promises you His peace through the power of the Holy Spirit, working by and with His Word in the hearts of those who love Him. And as we look at this passage, we're just going to see three things. Verse 25, Christ's presence. Verse 25 is Christ's presence. Verse 26 is Christ's promise. And in verse 27 is Christ's peace. Verse 25 is Christ's presence. Verse 26 is Christ's promise. And verse 27 is Christ's peace. We see first in verse 25 with Christ's presence. Notice what he says to them at this stage in John 14. We've been spending a lot of time in John 14, but I hope it's been good for your soul as it has been for mine. There's so many treasures in this chapter. Christ tells them in verse 25, These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. And so up to this point in the disciples' experience of Christ and their relationship with Christ... Everything they have heard from him has been when he's standing right next to them. Everything that he has taught them has been as they're in his presence. And he's speaking to them. The teaching they've received up to this point has been with their physical ears. They've actually heard the words of Christ from his lips to their physical ears. There is a necessary, I should say ordinarily, we have to receive the teaching of Christ with these ears. There is an outward ministry of the word that God uses to transform our hearts, 
And the ordinary way that God works is through these ears, meaning through the outward ministry of the gospel. Ministers who, are, who can stand right in front of you, and you can hear their voices, you can see their facial expressions, you can see, at least in my case, his hand motions. Standing right in front of you, ordinarily this is how God will teach us. This includes mental retention. Uh, this includes intellectual processing. Now, let me just be clear here. What I'm speaking about is the outward ministry of the word. Hearing Christian teachers teach just as they heard Christ teach right in their very presence and receiving the teaching through the physical ears, this outward ministry of the word also includes mental retention of the word that you receive. Think about the subjects that you're studying for your finals. You had to read the books, you had to think and meditate about it, you had to memorize, you had to process it all in your mind. It's the same with God's word. You receive it with the ears, and you have to think and process it through your mind. Christ tells them, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you. Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 3, speaks about... the outward ministry of the word. Westminster Confession, chapter 10, paragraph 3. This is page 678 in the blue hymnal if you want to follow along. The confession says that elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated, saved by Christ, through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are uncapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Notice how they describe elect infants and all other people who are incapable of being called by the outward ministry of the word. Either they don't have physical ears that work or their mental state is not sufficiently mature to receive the doctrine that's being taught. My infant daughter, she's not an infant anymore, but my baby daughter can't process a sermon. She is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Well, what this implies is that there is an ordinary outward ministry of the word. Ordinarily, there is an outward proclamation of the gospel that hits our physical ears and we retain it in the mind. This is the outward ministry of the word. This is a blessing that is not to be despised. This is a blessing that we should cherish and thank the Lord for when we have the outward ministry of the word. Paul in Romans 3 verses 1 through 2 is writing about the Jews and he's just gotten done condemning all mankind. Gentile and Jew are all sinners. You're all subject to God's wrath. Then the question arises, well, what's the advantage of being a Jew? But if everyone's under wrath, why does it matter if you're in the covenant nation? And Paul tells them, because they had the outward ministry of the word. To the Jews was committed the oracles of God. Gentiles and Jews are all under God's wrath. To the Jewish nation, God gave his scriptures. That was the advantage of being a Jew. They had the outward ministry of the word. 
Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 7, when Jeremiah is uh, condemning the nation, he's prosecuting the nation in his book, chapter 7, verse 13, he tells them that the Lord has risen up early and sent His servants, the prophets. So the Lord is telling the nation of Israel, I have tried to call you back to Myself by rising up early, sending prophets to you, and calling you through the outward ministry of the Word. This, is, this phrase, rising up early and sending My prophets, happens 11 times in the book of Jeremiah. And it's being brought up as a sign that God was favorable to them. God was giving them an opportunity. God was presenting the word to them. Now this is, this is important to appreciate and understand what Christ is saying to them. Our spiritual state can be discerned based on how we relate to the outward ministry of the word. Let me say that again. I know that may be a heavy topic on Sunday afternoon after the cookies. Our spiritual state can be discerned, it can be understood, it can be known, it can be tested by our relationship to the outward ministry of the Word. One, judgment upon a people is indicated by, uh, it's indicated by withdrawal of the outward ministry of the Word. Let me, let me say it this way. I've known people that have suffered from jaundice I think it's liver failure, maybe kidney failure. It's one of the two. They've suffered from jaundice. One of the ways you know they have jaundice is they're yellow. Their eyes and their skin goes yellow. So yellow is a sign of jaundice. Removing the outward ministry of the word is a sign of God's judgment. Amos chapter 8, 11, and 12. The Lord tells Israel there will come a famine, not of bread, not of thirst, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So when the Lord judges the people... He says, you'll know I'm judging you because I'm going to take the ministry away. On the other side, rebellion among people, so a nation, a, a, a time frame, a generation, even a church maybe, rebellion among the people is indicated by a rejection of the outward ministry of the word. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 and 10. Uh, we'll look at this one. Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10. The Lord, through Isaiah, is speaking to the, the, uh, the people of Judah. Isaiah 30, verses uh, 8 and 9. No, I'm sorry, 9 and 10. Uh, he says, tell this people that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. So notice how Isaiah describes this. These people are rebellious because they reject the outward ministry. They're rejecting the preaching of the gospel. They're rejecting the preaching of God's word. On the other side... A sign that God is at work among the people. A sign that His Spirit is moving and that revival is being produced by the Spirit of Heaven 
is by the joyful reception of the outward ministry of the word. If you want to know if God is at work among a people, in their hearts there is a joyful delight and embrace of the outward ministry of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 4, verses 13 through 20. Turn, turn there real quickly. Galatians 4, verses 13 through 20. We won't read that whole section, but Paul is, is trying to make his argument with the Galatians. He's trying to appeal to them. He says, I preach the gospel to you. Don't go to legalism. Stay in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, in verse 12, Brother, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first Verse 14, in my trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you even received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Notice Paul uses this example. Their joyful reception of Paul, who physically was not very attractive. He was probably short. He had very squinty eyes because of his eyesight problems. He was not a poster child. And he says, you received me as an angel of God, even as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I know God was at work among you. You know, George Whitfield, some of his stories about preaching in the British Isles, as he would preach the gospel of grace, he said one time, in Ireland, he had dead cats thrown at him, stones, all kinds of things. He almost died from stoning in Ireland because the Irish did not want to hear what he had to say. But he said when he went to Scotland, he almost died from hugs because they embraced the gospel so much they loved their minister. And so when God is at work, the outward ministry of the word is sought after, it's appreciated, it's, it's embraced. So there's a good question for us. What is our relationship to the outward ministry of the word? Are we under judgment? Are we in rebellion? Or are you being wrought upon by the Spirit of God? You know, one of the things they said during the the Reformation in Geneva and a lot of the Reformation cities, Calvin and the other pastors, they were preaching every day. They would preach three times on Sunday and they would give two theological lectures, which basically were sermons from those guys, almost every day in the city church. And the people would come. They weren't just compelling people to come in. The people would come to these things. And so, the outward ministry of the word is important. That's what Christ is telling them. Everything I've told you, it's when I've been present with you. I'm in your presence. This is the outward ministry of the word through the words of Christ himself. This is a very important blessing. However... The outward ministry is not enough. The outward call of the gospel is not sufficient to give us this peace. There has to be an inner work of the Spirit. That's where he moves to next. He says that when, uh, while I'm present with you, but he says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. When Christ's physical presence is taken away, he promises to send the Holy Spirit. 
When he's lifted up to the right hand of God, he says, now the Holy Spirit will come. Notice the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. This Greek word is called, it's paraclete. That's what the Greek word is. This word paraclete, it means a legal advocate, a proxy. So you might send your proxy to go do something on your behalf. A substitute. Uh, in the true sense of the word vicar. The Pope in Rome calls himself the vicar of Christ. That's blasphemous, literally blasphemous. Uh, and what the word means is that he says, I'm Christ's representative on earth. That's what vicar of Christ means. Well, what Christ is saying is, no, the Holy Spirit is my vicar. The Holy Spirit is my advocate. The Holy Spirit is the one who will be, who will be with you. And in this passage, he's called the paraclete because he advocates with us on Christ's behalf. He pleads the claims of Christ to your heart. That's why he's called the advocate here. That's why he's called the comforter. Christ is away, but the Spirit is present doing the work of Christ. Notice also that the Father sends him in the name of Christ. The Holy Spirit is authorized to carry out this work by the same one who authorized Christ to carry out his work. John 14, 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Christ's authority to promise everlasting life to all those that believe on him comes from the Father. And what Christ is saying now, the Holy Spirit, who has authority to apply that promise to your heart, his authority also comes from the Father. And he's sent in the name of Christ. This means he's sent to continue the work of Christ and bring it to perfection. The work of Christ on earth outwardly was a necessary element in our salvation. But the work of the Holy Spirit, while Christ is in heaven, perfecting and completing and applying that work to our hearts is just as necessary. And this is what Christ is speaking about when he says, the Holy Spirit will come in my name. Notice also the Holy Spirit's work is by and with the word. Look at what he says. The Holy Spirit who is sent in my name, he will teach you and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. First it says he will teach. This teaching of the Holy Spirit is inner heart teaching that only happens by the work of the Spirit. This, this inner heart transformation is when the Spirit of God calls you, not outwardly with these ears, but when He gives you spiritual life, He gives you spiritual ears in your heart and you are able to understand the things of God that are given to us freely by God as by the Spirit of God. This is how the Holy Spirit teaches. By reaching into the heart and doing something that the outward ministry of the Word can never do. You see, the outward preaching of the Gospel is like in one level, not in every level, but at one level it's like listening to a lecture in college. There's knowledge that I give to you. There's certain things you should take away from it. There's certain things to remember. There's certain knowledge that you gain by listening to a sermon. And it goes into your mind and you may think about it and remember it. 
All of that is the outward preaching of the ministry. All of that is the outward call of the gospel. What the Holy Spirit does is he takes that truth and he teaches it to your heart. He applies it more deeply than men can do. In fact, he applies the gospel more profoundly and more deeply, more personally than Christ did during his earthly ministry. Look at some examples of this. You can turn to these passages, but I won't, for the sake of time, turn to all of these passages. John chapter 3, when he's interviewing Nicodemus, or Nicodemus comes to him. What is the message that Christ gives to Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one can do the miracles that you do. You are an outward minister of the word. You have been lawfully ordained by heaven. We know that you're a prophet. And then Christ tells him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. With all of my credentials as the Messiah and the prophet like unto Moses, with all of my outward credentials as a minister of the word, if the Spirit doesn't work in you, my outward ministry is not going to do anything. John 6, 63-65, another famous passage where Christ teaches about his body and his blood. And then the people are offended by this. Christ tells them, the words I speak unto you are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. What he's saying to them is, I've outwardly taught you the truth as I received it from the Father. You're not able to receive it because you're not spiritual people. The Holy Spirit hasn't taught your heart. Many other passages that you could cite. Uh, Matthew 16, 17, Peter's great confession. Christ asked them, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Christ respond to him with? You remember? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And so the inner teaching of the Holy Spirit is necessary. It's absolutely necessary in the ministry of the Word and in your hearts. For the sake of time, I won't go through more of the content here that I have, but just just understand, brothers and sisters, you need to be taught outwardly by ministers and by the Scriptures on the page. But you also need to be taught inwardly. That needs to be applied by the power of the Spirit to your very souls. And Christ promises the Holy Spirit will do that. He will teach and He will also remind. He will bring to mind. He will will help you recall all the things that Christ has taught. Notice it's the Holy Spirit who does this. It's not something we do. You ever had this experience? I think it's kind of a common experience for those that have walked with the Lord. You're going through a season of life. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's joy. Maybe there's, there's, you know, whatever. It's, it's It's a human experience in your life. And all of a sudden scripture phrases come to your mind maybe you're tempted to do something and a scripture phrase pops up in your mind Uh, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof Uh, maybe when you're convicted of sin you're, you're convicted and you're wallowing and then all of a sudden Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners Jesus Christ came to save sinners he who believes in the son will have eternal life and shall not perish And these scripture phrases pop into your mind at the exact right time. That's the Holy Spirit. 
reminding you of all the things that Christ taught. Bringing them back up into your mind when you need them. Teaching and reminding you of the words of Christ. As we conclude, uh, notice verse 26. This is the promise that Christ makes to his people. When he's gone, the Spirit will come and he will powerfully work in the Word. The Word that I have taught you. Everything that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit will work. You know, Elijah, when he was on the top of Mount Carmel, having his contest with the prophets, Elijah came up to the mountain and he challenged the prophets and said, Make an altar, I'll make an altar. He laid out the wood. He laid out the sacrifice. He built everything for the altar. He poured water all over it. And then he said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Elijah built the altar and laid up the wood. God provided the fire. It's the same with our hearts. Scripture is the logs, kindling, and tinder of the sacrifice. And God, in this passage, promises to send the fire of the Holy Spirit to ignite those logs in due season. But if we have not laid Scripture up in our hearts, what can the Holy Spirit do? Now, there may be an objection at this point. Many think, when we talk about the work of the Spirit, the Spirit is God, and He can do as He wills, no matter what I do. We don't want to bind the Holy Spirit. We don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box. He's divine. The Spirit is indeed God, and He can do whatever He wills, whenever He wills. But here's the key thing. The Holy Spirit has only been promised to you in and through the Word. The Holy Spirit's work in your life has only been promised in and through the words of Scripture, the words of Christ. That's the only place we are allowed to go to seek the Holy Spirit. To seek the Holy Spirit outside of the Scriptures, outside of the Word of God, is presumptuous. Highly presumptuous. This is partly why the Lord forbade Israel from consulting soothsayers, those with familiar spirits, people that practice divination, witches, necromancers. They were not to go to those people, not because there wasn't real power there. They were not to go to those people because the power was corrupt and evil. And he told the people, seek me in my way through my means. Don't go there. If you want to know the Holy Spirit in your life, get to know the Scriptures. If you want more of the Holy Spirit, get more of Scripture. Lay it up in your hearts like so much wood for the burning. Build it up in your hearts like a, like a pyre that reaches to heaven. And when the Lord blesses you with the Holy Spirit, as you have absorbed Scripture, you will find it all begin to come to life in ways that you can't imagine. Because Christ promises He will teach you 
and he will remind you of everything that I've taught you. Well, we've seen Christ's presence, we've seen Christ's promise, and now we see Christ's peace. Understand, verse 27, the peace that Christ gives is a result of the work of the Spirit. The peace that Christ promises to us here is something that comes after the Holy Spirit has done His work. It's not something... Well, I'll just leave it there. A couple of comments just on verse 27. John Calvin and a lot of the commentators, but Calvin says it beautifully. Very interesting in verse 27, he, he notes the word that's used here is shalom. It would have been shalom in Aramaic. It's a different Greek word, but it would have been shalom in Aramaic. And so what Christ is doing according to the custom of this nation is saying, I bid you farewell to his friends. Christ, as it were, is saying goodbye to his disciples by using this kind of language. Now, there's more to it than just saying, I bid you farewell. Uh, there's, there's the kind of peace that abides with us. Notice that this peace, or I should say that uh, all peace is a cessation of conflict. That's what the word means. There's no more war. There's no more striving. There's no more wrath. There's no more hatred. There's no more fighting. There's peace. The peace that Christ gives us is His own peace. Look at what He says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is the peace that only Christ can accomplish. Reconciliation with the Father. Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2.14, Paul writes beautifully about the cross of Christ, and he says that in Christ he has made both one, having broken down the middle wall of separation, for he himself is our peace through his work on the cross. The peace that Christ gives to us is the removal of our sins. Through the removal of our sins, God's wrath is appeased and he's no longer at war with us. And through the transformation of our nature, our sins are removed and we're no longer at war with one another. And this peace that Christ gives to us is ours through the work of the Holy Spirit here on earth while he is absent from us. It's a peace that we can enjoy on earth through his work and the work of the Spirit. Notice he says, this is not as the world gives, do I give unto you. The peace of the world is fleeting. It's false. It's only external. And it comes at the price of our consciences. The, the peace that the world gives says, there's a conflict here. Um, forget about your principles and just get along to get along. The peace of the world often comes at the price of conscience. The peace of Christ, however, is solid, true, internal, not dependent on our outward circumstances. It's something we enjoy in the heart. And it comes at the cost of Christ's own blood, which cleanses the conscience. Now, here is an important lesson. 
We often go astray seeking peace, but neglecting the means to which the peace is promised. We all long for peace. We all want to be at, not at war anymore. Not at war with heaven, not at war with one another. We, we want to be at peace. But we're often too impatient with the Lord and with His way to really enjoy this kind of peace. Peace is promised to you. But you cannot seek it directly. Peace is promised to you as a result of using the means by faith. Look at Philippians 4, 6 and 7. One of the, one of the greatest passages that speaks about peace in the whole Bible. Not just the New Testament, but in all the Scriptures. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. This is a very famous verse to a lot of you. I'm certain... But I want you to notice the order of blessing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And we read that passage all the time. Many of us probably have it memorized. Some of us probably have it stenciled on our wall. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to read it in the way we misunderstand it. I'm going to read it in the way we often misunderstand what Paul is saying. Be anxious for nothing, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's often how we understand this verse. But notice what Paul says. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. What is Paul saying? Don't be anxious. Pour all of those anxieties out to God. Make Him know. Let Him know what's going on in your heart. Lord, I'm scared. Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, I'm, I'm depressed. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I don't know what to do. Let your requests be made known to God. Tell Him. He has all the time in the world. You're not going to waste his time. He never ignores his children who cry out to him. As you make your request known to God, as you lift up your hearts to him with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. As a result of using the means in faith, and by the Spirit. It's the same with prayer. It's the same with the Word. It's the same with the sacraments. Use the means, because that's where the blessing is attached. There are many, at this season, who are thinking and speaking, and even singing about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. You know, liberal Christianity 
that the kind of Christianity that's taken over most of our country has taken the birth of Christ and, and they'll say things like, because Christ was born into the earth, because the baby was laid in the manger, because we can paint this hallmark sentimental scene of mother and child and the donkeys and the little drummer boy, simply by the birth of Christ, there's now peace on earth. Isn't that nice? Let's go about our lives not thinking about the Lord. In other words, liberal Christianity has taken the peace that Christ promises and turned it into the peace of the world. External, fake, false, fleeting. But as we look at the narrative of Christ's birth, Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and we see that when the angels announced to the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, verse 8 verse through 14. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch on their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The peace of God is the greatest blessing that he can bring to us. But the peace of God belongs to those who by the Spirit of God have had the Word of God applied to their hearts and are forgiven of their sins through the work of Christ. This peace on earth is made possible by the birth of Christ. The means He has appointed and the promises He's made to those who use those means are the only ones that enjoy this peace, even here on earth. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the promises you've attached to it. Please cause us to be diligent in seeking you through the means, even as Christ promises that he leaves his peace with us. Cause our peace to increase and to be great and that your promise would be filled. Great would be the peace of our children as you teach them by your spirit. And we pray that you would bless us for the rest of this day as we go to our homes to enjoy your goodness. And we pray it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.